Jessica and I are at the American Humanist Association Conference, and we are here with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, and we'll give her a chance to introduce herself. So, I'm Elizabeth Loftus, and I am on the faculty at the University of California, Irvine, in Southern California. I I have faculty appointments in a number of different departments, a, a psychology department, a criminology department, and also the School of Law. And I understand you have a focus on memory and how it works and how it often doesn't work. I do. I've been, for many decades, I've been studying human memory. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in how people come to remember things that didn't happen. Because when people remember things that didn't happen, it can create a whole lot of trouble for other people. So in a TED Talk you did a few years ago, you told a story about basically someone who said she remembered... Uh, her rapist, and she knew him, like, when she saw the picture of a guy, she said, that's the guy. I'm absolutely 100% sure it's the guy. And it wasn't the guy. Uh, well, the, actually, the story's a little bit more complicated. Yes. That, that is a, a case in, involving a man named uh, Steve Titus. And Titus was this restaurant manager. He had everything going for him in life. He was engaged to be married to the love of his life. Uh, when he was uh, stopped and and under a suspicion that uh, he might have been a, somebody who raped a, a woman who had been raped in that general area, and actually when the rape victim first looked at the photos, the photos and was asked to do, do you identify anyone, she said something like, "This one's the closest." But by the time of trial, it was then that she was absolutely positive it was Titus and. Uh, he was convicted, and he he was shocked. His uh, fiance was, you know, fell to the floor crying. The family was, uh, oh my God, incredibly upset. Steve Titus is hauled off to jail, and the reason that I uh, was so sad about this particular case is that ultimately it was proven that he was innocent. And in the middle of a civil lawsuit where he was suing the people who he felt was responsible for the fact that he'd lost his job and his fiance, and uh, he died of a heart attack, a stress-related heart attack, and he was only 35 years old. Jeez. So that's, that's how uh, bad things can get when you're falsely accused of of anything that you didn't do. Well, and it's such an interesting topic because I feel like we all think that we can trust our own eyes or our own memories. But in reality, it's such a flawed thing. And especially when you're talking a criminal case when the victim was became so certain. How do you go from mm, that's kind of the most close to what I remember to I'm 100% sure this is the guy? Well, that is what I looked into when I was uh, working on his civil case. And, um, you know, I believe it was highly suggestive questioning mm-hmm. and uh, by the lead investigator who developed a theory that Steve did it and managed to convince this rape victim and and bolstered her confidence. And so by the time of trial, you get this very confident woman mm-hmm. um, who uh, believes in what she's saying, but it's a product of suggestion and not her actual perception. So now that's the extreme side of things. On a regular day-to-day basis, how do we also feed ourselves these sort of lies? How do we trick ourselves into thinking we know things that we don't actually know? 
Well, it can happen in a number of ways. And I mean, it, it, when they're legal cases, we can pick up information when we talk to other witnesses or when we see news coverage about some event that we might have experienced. We can even influence our own memories. This is called auto-suggestion, where you, you draw inferences about what might have happened, what could have happened, uh, what probably happened, and those inferences can solidify and become to feel like real memories. So that's how we can even contaminate our own memories. Can we tell when we're doing this? Is there a way to inoculate ourselves against this? Yeah, you really, without independent corroboration, you can't know, uh, reliably know, whether you're dealing with a genuine memory or one that's a product of some other process. You need that independent corroboration. You just, But unfortunately, people will usually just rely on the fact that it feels detailed, it, uh, you feel emotional about it, you feel confident, and that's often enough to convince the person himself or people who are listening to the story that it's a real true story. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> like, how, do you, how do you know? How do you know what to trust or not? Well, I, I, I think a healthy skepticism about memory would, sure. would benefit all of us. It would, it would certainly have benefited Steve Titus. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, I, I, I think, for example, in my own life, I, my work has made me a little bit more tolerant of the mistakes that friends or family members make, or even that I make. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't have to assume that somebody is deliberately lying. They, they can be honestly mistaken. Yeah. You're like a walking Law & Order episode right now. <laughs> uh, well, I, there could be a good episode about yeah. this, I think. Yeah, yeah. How, um, how do you research this sort of thing? Like, when we are saying you do research into this, are you doing purely psychological studies of people, or can you actually get into their brain and figure out you know, what chemistry is going on that helps them solidify these ideas? Well, I do psychological studies uh, where I plant memories, false memories, in the minds of people. So some of my studies involve uh, applying suggestive questioning and getting people to remember details differently, that the car went through a stop sign instead of a yield sign, or that the bad guy had curly hair instead of straight, straight hair. And we can do this just by asking leading questions. Uh, but then some of my more recent work involves actually planning entire, entirely false memories into the minds of people for things that didn't happen, making people believe they had experiences that we've completely made up. How do you do that? Uh, well, one of our earliest ways was to say to our, our research subjects, um, we've, we've talked to your mother and we found out some things that happened to you when you were about five or six years old. And we just like to see how you remember things, what you remember, how it's similar to what your, your mother told us. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we present them with a few true memories, things the mother told us really did happen, mm -hmm. and then a completely made-up story about how you were lost in a shopping mall, you were five years old, we last saw you by the elevators near the pet store, uh, you were gone for a long period of time, you were crying, and ultimately an elderly person found you and reunited. Do you remember that? And by the time we are done with three suggestive interviews, we found about a quarter of our ordinary, healthy adults were remembering all or part of this made-up experience. And that was one of the earliest studies of planting of what we're now calling rich false memories. But there have been many more 
that have been done not only by my lab, but also by other research laboratories around the, around the world. Is this ethical? <laughs> well, it, Can you implant false memories and get away with it? Like, it seems like there's some sort of ethical issue here. There definitely is an ethical issue, and that's why, you know, if you're working on a college or university campus doing research with human beings, you have to worry about the ethics of it. We're not allowed, even in the name of science, to do anything we want to people. So we have to, we have to present our proposed research to these ethics committees, and they review the pr proposals and, and grant permission, or maybe they make us make some changes. So these are all approved by the human uh, ethics committees uh, on the campuses, uh, and uh, so in that sense, they're ethical, and they're certainly teaching us about something important uh, about what happens out there in the real world. I feel like for a while there was a really trendy thing of recovering false or not recovering uh, recovering like buried memories. You there's repress. like a repressed. Thank you. Thank you, Hammett. Buried repress. Is that a real thing, or is it almost always? Is it possible to repress a memory and then pull it back out, or is it all just the person suggesting this happened to you? You were beat as a kid, or whatever. Well, well, one thing we do know is that people cannot think about things for a long time and be reminded of them. Mm -hmm. People cannot think about things that are unpleasant uh, and be reminded of them. And you, you just have to go to a high school reunion. You can experience that for yourself. But but what was being claimed in many of these cases is I was raped for 11 years or I was forced into a satanic ritual uh, cult and I, I had to see animals be sacrificed and I mean allegedly repressed into the unconscious until usually some therapy made you aware of this. In fact, there, in my opinion, there is no credible scientific support for this idea of massive repression. And, and so if these memories, you know, if these memories aren't real, mm -hmm. and in many instances they, they've been contradicted by scientific or psychological or even geographic information, where did they come from? And I think that the research that I and other psychological scientists have been doing can help us understand how you can plant seeds and out of that a whole rich false memory can grow. Is it, sorry, is it usually... Uh, uh it being planted, the psychologist or whomever is is suggesting these things, or can it be, I'm sort of starting to just talk because, and this person is kind of encouraging my own so my own like story. A yeah. Well, both of the, those yeah. kinds of things go on. I mean, a typical scenario, very common in the in the 90s, and even <laughs> even still happens, is she goes into therapy, and, and maybe she's got an eating disorder, or, or she's depressed, and the therapist says something like. You know, everyone I've seen with those symptoms was sexually abused as a child. I wonder if something like that happened to you. Jeez. Oh, you say it didn't happen? Well, you know, many people repress their memories. So if you'll just close your eyes and, and just try to imagine who might have done this to you and how old might you have been and where might it have happened, and there you see this highly suggestive process as it unfolds. And it's not on purpose. Yeah. This is not something they're doing. It's not nefarious. Yeah, it's not nefarious. They're, they think they're helping by doing this. They do, because they bought into the, the, this theory that massive repression, uh, repression of horrific trauma mm -hmm. is the cause of these symptoms, the depression, the eating disorder, the uh, dysfunction in life, and that the only way to cure you is to recover the repressed memories. And, and the therapist thinks she's helping. 
So uh, as Hemant will uh, verify, I'm on a quite a true crime kick in my life right now. And so one thing that I think is very interesting is when somebody's denying, 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 telling this this false narrative. You know, a man came out of the bushes and shot my kids, even though she, in fact, shot her kids. At what point is it possible to convince yourself that you're telling the truth at some point, even though you started with knowing you manufactured a lie? Is it possible to say it so many times that it becomes true to you? Yes. Uh, of course, in some of those cases, people are denying and, and they're actually guilty and they, mm -hmm. they know it. But in other situations, uh, what starts as a lie, a deliberate lie, and you tell the story over and over, it, it, can, become, it can become your truth. And, and uh, you know, we sometimes see this in, in these stolen valor cases where people, uh, you know, say they were fought battles in Vietnam or, or whatever, and it turns out uh, they tell the story enough and they start to really believe it and they could tell you, you know, and get emotional about how they saw their... Their, their buddy die, uh, but it turns out they were never there. And that, that, it's that story, that initial lie, that turns into what feels to them as their truth. What's the overlap between all this memory stuff and what we might see in religion? Because I know a lot of our listeners are atheists. They grew up in churches where maybe they heard the pastor say something a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, they feel a lot of guilt over it. Is there any overlap between the research you do and what people may hear in a church? Well, I, I'm not sure about that. When I mean, generally, I generally I just talk about the scientific studies and the, and the findings. I talk about the fact that we are susceptible to believing and remembering things uh, that didn't happen and what some of the consequences of that might be. And and when I do that, I I, I am hoping that people who are professionals in the field, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's psychotherapists, or now even people in a religious situation, can take this information and apply it to their situation. So I'd ask you, I mean, you know, somebody says they saw Virgin Mary in a piece of toast, I mean, and they really, uh, they really believe it, you don't have to assume they're lying. They could have conjured up an image and now um, really, really believe in what they're saying. Yeah, I, I think also, and we've talked about religious leaders, heads of the Mormon church who say God speaks directly to them, and I, I guess I've always liked, do they actually believe it, or are they outright lying, but the truth could be somewhere in the middle, that they've been telling themselves over and over that God is speaking to me, or whatever, and now they truly do believe it, even if it started from a I know, a less, less honest place. Uh, right, absolutely. So what sort of questions are unanswered for you that you, you would love to see uh, more research done into regarding the subject? Well, right now, I, I, I mean, we are getting so good at um, manipulating people's memories and affecting right. their later thoughts, intentions, and behaviors. Um, and we're going to get even better, I mean, because I think you know, I see a future where maybe I use behavioral techniques, no drugs, but maybe even some pharmaceutical combination with my suggestive techniques are going to make it even easier. And then, then we're going to have to ask as a society, what, ethically, what, what do we want to do with this knowledge? I mean, should, should we ever ban the use of these techniques? Should we ever affirmatively use these techniques to try to help people and change behavior that they would like to change. Like take a depressed person and implant some happy false memories in their head? Well, or take <laughs> a, a, you know, an obese person and um, make them be 
develop a memory of, of uh, getting sick on foods that they can't seem to resist, or alcohol uh, that they are imbibing too much of, and get them to avoid those substances. We've already shown you can do that, but should we do that? What do you think? Uh, well, uh, I personally... You personally. Um, I personally, I've gotten in trouble for this. Uh, <laughs> you know, therapists can't deliberately plant false memories. Uh, they're not ethically supposed to do that. But at some point when I was being interviewed about my work, I suggested that um, maybe uh, nothing to stop a parent from trying to use these techniques with their overweight or obese teenager or older child. Uh, and my critics, of which there are many, you know, started screaming, oh, there she, there she goes, she's advocating the parents lie to their children. And, uh, you know, my reaction to that was, what about Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy? I mean, parents they lie to me all the time. Parents lie, um, you know, when, they, when it serves their purpose. But more seriously, if, if, if I had a kid, I mean, which would you rather have? A kid with obesity, shortened lifespan, heart troubles, all of the things that go with that, or a kid with a little bit of fiction in the memory. There's already so much fiction in there. Mm -hmm. A little bit more that might be helpful might not be a bad idea. So at least in terms of uh, the criticism you might get, that, that one at least makes sense. That could be debated. What else are they criticizing in your work? What other sort of things do they not like? Because it seems like what you're saying, this is all very useful information, yeah. but what are the critics saying about it? Oh, they'll say things like, uh, the therapists don't use suggestive techniques that are strong suggestions like the ones I'm using in my experiments. Um, at, in fact, I don't believe that's true because we could do this in a few sessions in a very short period of time. The therapists have these patients week after week after week after year after year. And so there's a lot more opportunity for suggestion. In fact, we've modeled our, our procedures after some of the things that I saw going on in some of the therapy sessions in the court cases in which I was either consulting or, or testifying. Uh, the critics might say that the false memory problem isn't really as big as as we are claiming it is. That you can't really you can't really influence that many people. Um, but we've seen people, sometimes up to seventy percent of people, buying into suggestions and developing a false memory. You, you can see some very big effects in some of these studies. How did you get involved in this particular branch? In this this topic, what's the connection for you? Why are you so fascinated by it? Well, I think uh, first of all, when I uh, when I got out of graduate school, I was uh, working on human memory, but but very theoretical work, the kind of work you could maybe talk to three other people about who would care. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point, I decided I really want to do some work that has more obvious social relevance could, it could impact the world and make a difference. And, but I, was, I knew about memory. Um, I was interested in the law. And, and so a, a marriage of those two, or an intersection, was how about the memory of crimes, uh, people to crimes, accidents, and other legal events? Mm -hmm. And that's what I started to study. And, and once I was doing experimental studies of memory for crimes and accidents, then I got asked to be involved in court cases where uh, this kind of testimony is so crucial and where precise memory really does matter. 
And so you do you actually go into courtrooms and talk to witnesses or verify witness statements, or what's, what's your role there? Uh, I consult on court cases, gotcha. and uh, when uh, there's something some relevant science and the attorney wants to introduce it as uh, expert witness testimony, uh, then I actually go into court. But I'm, I'm analyzing police reports, medical records, all kinds of documents to try to see where did this memory come from. So we're at the AHA convention. You're receiving the Isaac Asimov Science Award, which is an awesome honor. What Thank are you. you going to talk about to the crowd tonight? Uh, well, I, there's going to be a little bit of, um, thank you, I'm honored, <laughs> uh, a little bit of here's the work that, uh, for those of you who don't know that um, I have done that I think brings me here, a little bit about the criticism and the attacks and the police guards I've had to have and the death threats, uh, and then thank you. Bookend it with thank you. That's an intense sort of criticism. And when you have police guards and people coming after you, what are they mad about? Is it? Uh, they're mad because uh, sometimes I am questioning accusations of sexual abuse. And they exaggerate my position and say that I don't believe sexual abuse happens and <laughs> that I'm against victims and... Uh, and so they're mad about that. And, and the mad people are the therapists whose techniques I've uh, criticized and the recovered memory patients who they influenced. I think this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is walking the line between being an advocate for victims and believing victims, but also innocent until proven guilty and like where in between there can we comfortably live in a way that's not dismissing somebody's accusations out of hand but on the other hand, isn't, you know, if I accuse somebody of something guilty, nobody can doubt me because I'm the victim. That's exactly the tension. And, and it has played itself out in, uh, not only in, the, in many of the court cases that I've been involved with, but now, now a new arena is all of the campus uh, accusations and the sexual assault mm -hmm. and so harassment. When you, so when you read, like, the Rolling Stone article that got yeah. all the press, what's going through your head when you're reading that? Well, what, what, uh, what often goes through my head when I read... I mean, I, I see people around me, when they hear an accusation, they media say, oh, my, that, that's slime bag. They, yeah. they believe it. When I read an accusation, I say, hmm, I wonder. Mm -hmm. I wonder. And I certainly wondered about that one. And that one, at least, it sounds like you're right on that call. That article turned out to be fictional, or the victim didn't actually go through what she said she did. Well, uh, I, th there are a lot of other calls where that's happened, too. I mean, I've yeah. I worked on the Duke lacrosse uh, oh, yeah. supposed rape case, for example, well, that was... Uh, accusations against innocent people based on bad testing and bad showing of photos. That's so it, just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> it's, an, it's an intense uh, subject to get involved with, but uh, very interesting, though. Thank you for talking with us about it, and congratulations My on your award. Yeah, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, real, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks.